Let's look to Psalm 95, page 591 in the Pew Bible. Let me pray. Lord, we do just pray that you would show us your glory now through your word. Oh, Lord, we, we get bombarded all week with so many messages and so many commercials and ads. And, Lord, we just long to hear your voice and your word. And that's why we're here together this morning as your people. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't need to go to church on Sunday morning to worship God. I can connect with God just fine in my own way. I connect with God when I'm out fishing in my kayak. I connect with God when I'm walking on the beach or or when I'm hiking in the mountains in New Hampshire, when I'm out working in the yard. That's my spirituality when I'm playing golf with my friends. I don't need to be in a building on a Sunday morning with a bunch of people to really worship God. Have you ever heard that line? Have you ever said that line? Did you say that line this morning when somebody was twisting your arm trying to get you to church? Well, you know, there's truth to that. That's the thing. There's truth to it. It's true. You don't have to be with other people to worship God. That's true. And yes, it's true. You don't have to be in a particular building on a particular time in a particular day of the week to to lift up your heart to God and worship Him. And yeah, it's true. There's something about being outside in nature that just connects us to the glory of God. I mean, the, the Bible tells us that God has put His glory in creation. So it's no surprise that when you, we have time to just look at nature, you're going to be experiencing God's glory reflected in that. That's all true. But it's also true that throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, God summons His people together as well to worship Him corporately. That God doesn't just save us individually so we can go off and have our private worship experience on Mount Washington, but He also summons us and gathers His people so that we would worship Him corporately. So if if you're a Christian and, and you don't really prioritize gathering regularly with God's people in some church somewhere to worship, you are at best a sinful and disobedient Christian. And if you have no desire whatsoever to gather with God's people to worship Him, it's possible that you're not actually a Christian at all and that you're deceiving yourself. It's that important as we look. And here Psalm 95 is is one of the classic calls to worship in the Bible. Psalm 95 is a psalm, we we read it here in our service, it's been used down through the centuries by the church to call and summon God's people together in worship. So let me read this psalm, it's 11 verses, and as I do, I want you to listen for for a transition in this psalm. There's a point where the psalm changes tone dramatically, and I think you'll be able to catch it. But here's a psalm about the call to worship, and in many ways it's, it's how to worship, In fact, I've entitled this sermon, Worship 101, The Basics of Corporate Worship and and Why We Do It and How We Do It Together. So let me read Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. 
In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. I'm sure you saw that transition, huh? It's like really positive and worshipful, verses 1 to 7. And at the end of verse 7 and verses 8 through 11, it suddenly gets really scary and pointed. But both of these parts of the psalm help us to understand what corporate worship is all about and why we should do it. So let's look at each of them in turn. Let's start with verses 1 to 7, the kind of more positive, joyful summons and call to worship. And I want to make three observations about corporate worship from verses 1 to 7. And here's the first one. Number one, notice that, that we are called to worship. And now this is kind of a basic thing, but again, God calls his people together as a, as a body to worship. Look at verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud. That's a a summons and a call corporately for us. Verse 2. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving. Verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So the psalm is, is a call to God's people to gather. And throughout the Bible... God has not only saved a people for himself, that's the main storyline of the Bible. You know, what's the Bible all about? It's the story of God saving a people for his glory. That's the whole point of the Bible. And it's the story of how God does that. And and in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that when God saves a people, he he gathers them and he summons them to worship him. So, So that when we're saved as Christians, we're not only saved into a personal relationship with Jesus, which we are, but we're also saved into a family. And so God saved the, the Israelites to become a people, the people of Israel. And in the new covenant, he saved us through Jesus so that we're part of the new Israel, the church. But, but it's the same. God gathers a people together. And part of what our primary job is as a church is to worship him. In fact, that's our first and foremost job is to worship the Lord. It's, it's kind of our, our, our central mission if you look at your bulletin, um, maybe you got a little gray bulletin when you came in, look on the front cover. Our church's mission statement is on there. You know, mission statements, we put them up and then we never look at them again. They're on the wall at your company, but you've never read it, right? Look at our mission statement, right? Why, why do we exist? What's our mission? South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God. So we're here to gl- for the glory of God. That's the purpose of human existence. How? by worshiping him, and by making disciples of Jesus, of the people of the South Shore and beyond. So we're here to glorify God through worshiping him and then going out and, and amongst one another and making disciples. That's our task. But you notice that, that right there is worship. You know, someday we're going to be in eternal life 
And this world will be done and we'll be with the Lord forever in his kingdom. And when we're finally with the Lord in his kingdom, we'll never be making disciples again. That will be done because the disciples will be made. But we'll always be worshiping him. That's our calling throughout all eternity is to savor and treasure and rejoice in and exult in the best thing ever in the whole universe, which is God himself. That's our future, and that's our calling. And so, so, so we do that as a church, and, and we set aside time to do that. That's part, it, some of the logic behind why would we want to gather as one service. And part of it is, well, we're a church, and so let us come together. And right now in this season of our church's life, we're able to do that. That seems to be ideal. Churches can't always do that, but when they can, it seems like a good thing to do, to let us come together to worship the Lord. And as we worship the Lord as a church, and, and as we gather here and we hear each other sing and we, we hear His Word, it's a little, for, a little glim foretaste of eternal life. It's a, it's, it's a little um, um, shadowy foretaste of, of what it's going to be like when we're finally there with the Lord, worshiping Him. It's a glimpse. Did I say glim foretaste? That's not even a word. I just made up a word. A glim foretaste. Of the future. And so are you and I prioritizing the corporate worship of God, whether here at our church or maybe you go to another church, wherever it is? We're not the only church in the universe, that's for sure. Do you prioritize the worship of God with His people? Do you put energy into carving out time in your schedule? Do you reorient your schedule so that you can be on time to be with God's people to worship? Do you, do you plan around it? You know, this is the fall, and I don't know what your house is like in the fall. At our house, it's, it's crazy time. It's crazy. Like, everything is starting up, and everything's getting planned, and the schedule goes from kind of a relaxed summer mode to the super intense crazy mode, and, um, and so everything's getting planned, and the schedule's getting filled, and, and, you know, the way my wife and I do it, we share a Google Calendar, and suddenly my Google Calendar is totally populated with all of these events and activities and times, and I, I kind of just ignore it because it's overwhelming. Um, and how did you not know it was on the calendar? I know, I don't read it because I, I pass out when I read the calendar. It's too much. <laughs> Sorry, honey. But, but is that something we put in our calendar where we say the worship of God is central to who we are as a people? Did we prioritize it and, and block it out and adjust our lives in order to be with one another? If maybe you're here from another church, you're here visiting this weekend, do you, do you do that in your church? Do you prioritize the worship of God? But there's more to that than this psalm. It's not just a call. It's not just a, a summons to worship. But here's the second thing I notice about worship in verses 1 to 7. It's, number one, a call to corporate worship, but it's also a description of corporate worship in action. Do you see how all the verbs that are going on in this psalm, you, you kind of get a picture of what corporate worship looks like when it's taking place among God's people. And, and you notice it's a complex picture. There's lots of different things going on during worship. You know, what, what does it look like during the worship when God's people are together to worship Him? Well, there's, there's kind of two sides to it. There's a joyous, raucous, celebratory side. Do you see that? Verse 1, let us 
Sing for joy to the Lord. Not just singing, but singing for joy. Joyous singing. Let us shout aloud. They're shouting. You know? A couple of you, every once in a while, shout amen. We get a little nervous. It's okay. It's in the Bible. (laughs) You can shout aloud. It's all right. You know? You know, don't get too carried away. I mean, you know, we're still in New England, and we don't want people to freak out totally, but a little shouting. Or look down at at verse uh, 2. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let's extol him with music and song. There's a real vibrancy to this psalm. Worship in action is, is loud and joyful and, and full of energy and exuberance. There's life here. And when you look at all the rest of the Psalms in the Psalter, you, you see those kinds of words. They're singing and shouting and declaring and extolling. There's clapping of hands. There's raising of hands. There's waving of hands. There's, there's all this energy and activity. Worship has a very aerobic dimension in the Psalter. If you would have seen Israel worship, they were very much in motion in a lot of ways. And, 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 and so it's good and, and right and fitting to worship God like that. Uh, some of you here are from um, different cultures. You grew up in different parts of the world. We have different ethnicities in our church and different cultural backgrounds. And, and for some of you, you, you come from cultural backgrounds where, where the corporate worship of God is I don't know how we could put this nicely, but a little more energetic than in New England, you know? (laughs) Some of you maybe come from uh, Latino backgrounds. I know we have Brazilian brothers and sisters here. Uh, Even in some quarters of the African-American church in America, there's just just different levels of exuberance. And and so some parts of the body of Christ seem to just get this more naturally. And, 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 you know, you're here with us at South Shore Baptist, and many of you have made this church your home, even though you're ethnically from somewhere else. And, and I know, like, you're like, I love it here, but I just kind of wonder sometimes, like, why people are so chill, you know? Like, when are we going to bust out and worship? You know, it's like we're doing our best, okay? Frozen chosen, we're thawing, but it takes time, Right? One of our missionaries, Pat Devine, who's, who's here, she talks about worship in Togo in West Africa. And part of the worship service is, you know, there's a dancing portion, right? Like there's a dancing portion? That's part of the liturgy. I was talking to uh, some of our um, church members who recently went on a, a mission trip to Costa Rica. We sent a bunch of youth and adults down to Costa Rica. And, and one of the things that people remarked on when they went down there, the highlights, was worshiping with the Costa Rican church. And, and the energy and the life and the vibrancy. So, so here's what the, the, it's like in a Costa Rican worship service. This is what they tell me. The first hour, hour is singing. They stand the whole time. They have no hymnals. They have no songbooks. They've memorized it all. And they just sing their guts out for an hour. You know? And then when they're done with that, then the preaching starts, and, you know, and on it goes. And they're not like, eh, come on, I'm going to, you know, kickoffs at 122, right? <laughs> come on. They're just like, we're here to worship, and we're going to worship till it's done. And so, so there's an exuberance here, and, and it's okay. And God's people are called to that joyful, exuberant worship. But notice, there's also a reverent, quiet somber, 
aspect to worship, an awe-filled humbling before the Lord. Look at verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord. Do you get that shift in tone? It goes from this really joyful, high-energy thing to this quiet, somber, solemn kind of worship. In fact, you see the word worship there in verse 6? Let us bow down and worship. In Hebrew, the word worship literally means to prostrate oneself. So when we use the word worship, we often use it as a synonym for singing. Like this is how we use it. Oh, a church, the worship in church was great today. And what we mean is, I like the music. But if you were speaking in Hebrew and you said, you know, the worship and use that word for worship, what you're talking about literally is to lay on your face on the ground in front of God. And so, so there's a, a deep, humble awe and reverence here, and that's part of worship too. And, you know, we, we experience that even in our church. Um, you know, I think like the times where uh, once a month when we have communion and there's a portion of communion where it's just silent. It's kind of weird, isn't it, at first? Like we're all just quiet. Like hundreds of people in a room not saying anything, no one saying anything, but we're just bowing our heads and we're humbling ourselves in quiet before the Lord because he is worthy of our awe and reverence. Sometimes you just need to shut up and just be in awe of God and, and let your heart just be humbled and quieted. Be still before the Lord because he's worthy of reverence and awe. Or on our Monday Thursday communion service, some of you know that worship service where it's quiet and we're in awe before God. Or maybe some of you have traveled to Europe to the great cathedrals. You walk into those cathedrals and there's something about the architecture that was intentional, right? That that was to to create an architectural sense of gravitas and weight and awe. And you walk into the great cathedrals in in Europe and the last thing you would think to do would be to break out a banjo and start singing. You know, you just want to like be quiet before the Lord because he's great and awesome. And there's a place for that. And sometimes it's refreshing. You know, there's a, there's a kind of worship that takes place. I think especially in a lot of American evangelical churches. And it's not everywhere, but you find it. And um, it, it's just this kind of like fluffy, empty. You know, people have, uh, have dubbed it theotainment. You know, entertainment. It's, it's like in the name of God, but it's just kind of cheesy, corny, bubbly entertainment. And, and there isn't any sense of the awe of God. And then you walk into a, a cathedral and, and you go through a solemn liturgy and you say there's something there that we, we need because it's weighty, because God is awesome and great. And so there we, we have both of these things. You have the, the exuberant, energetic, let's stand for an hour and sing our guts out, and then there's the let's get on our face and be quiet because God is the great God. And they're both here, and they're both right, and they're both part of the actions of worship. Let me ask you, which one do you gravitate toward? I think sometimes we we have personalities and preferences and backgrounds. We tend to gravitate toward one or another. And then we we even kind of describe that as worship. We'll say, oh, it was so worshipful today at church. And be like, what do you mean? You know? And for some people, it was worshipful meant it was like through the roof high energy. And other people are like, it was worshipful because it was really quiet and, and we were calm. But it's like, you know, 
worship takes all kinds of different forms, and we see both of them here in, in the Scriptures. Let me turn that question around a little bit and say, do you ever wish that you worship more like this psalm? Do you ever look at yourself and say, boy, I wish I, I could worship? Maybe, you come, maybe you've had this experience where you come to church, you kind of look around, you see other people worshiping, and you're like, man, that, that guy's really into it. She, she's really in it. How do you get like that? How, how do I get into worship? I, how do I like, get myself so that when I go, you know, I, how, do they, how do they do this? I just feel weird putting my hands up, you know? Like, do I just force myself? Like, how do you get into the, the worship mode and into the groove of it? How do I catch that thing? Well, there's a secret to it. There's a secret to getting into the mode of worship. And here's the secret. You don't focus on the actions of worship themselves. That's not how you do it. So if you want to like kind of get into it in worship, here's what you don't do. Don't go home and, and this week stand in front of the mirror and practice like hand-raising positions. <laughs> like, am I, am I more of like a high or a one-hander? Am I kind of a... <laughs> Maybe if I wore this blouse, that would look good. Like... That's not how you do it. You you don't focus on the activity of worship. If you want to be lost in worship so that it's natural to whoever you are and whoever we are, you don't focus on how you worship. You focus on who you worship. When you get your eyes on the one you're worshiping, then whatever worship looks like will just be who you are. And it'll be normal and natural. You won't be thinking about what you're doing. You'll be thinking about who you're worshiping. Look again at the psalm. So here's the third part of this first seven verses. So the first one was there's a summons to corporate worship. Secondly, we have descriptions of corporate worship. But number three, number three you have the source and the fuel and the, the reason for corporate worship. And the reason is because of who God is. Look at verse three. Four. Right, you see that word Four. So do you follow the logic? Verses 1 and 2, let us, let us. Why? For, because, this is the reason we sing, this is the reason we gather, this is the reason to get all fired up, for the Lord is the great God. Same thing in verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship, let us kneel, let's, let's, let's worship by humbling ourselves. Why? Verse 7, for, because, here's the reason, here's the motivation, this is what drives it. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And so it is the, the truth of who God is and an experience of God that produces true worship of God. If we just focus on the, the singing or the music or the hand-raising or the not hand-raising or the crying or the clapping or whatever, we're focusing on the wrong thing. That's just the, the effect those are the actions of worship. Actually, a better term would be they're the reactions of worship because true worship is reactive. It's not active, it's reactive. We're sensing or experiencing or learning something about God and we just react. And, and that's how it always works. It's, it's a natural human process. We do this stuff all the time. You know any kids here, little kids here today? Imagine this. Imagine I'm your dad. Okay, I know, that's terrifying, but imagine... And imagine, I'm your dad, and I, I say to you after church, guess what, everyone? Got some news. You're not going to school on Tuesday because our family's going to Disney for a week. How would you react? 
That's not how you would react. <laughs> you guys are all thinking. I know what you do. You'd be like, ah, right? You'd jump on the couch even though you're not supposed to. You'd hug mom and dad. You'd bow down before them. You'd be like, thank you, mom and dad. Ah, right? You'd be flipping out. All right, adults. Any of you here, uh, anyone watch the Super Bowl this last year where the Patriots won? And, you know, you'd, okay, a couple of you, yeah. Yeah, deflate this NFL, right? You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, okay, so remember, okay, if you watch the game, where were you? 24 seconds left, fourth quarter, Patriots up by a hair, Seahawks, like, at the goal line, Wilson passes, and the rookie, Malcolm Butler, steps up to intercept. In that moment, what did you do? <laughs> I know what you did. You sat there on your couch and you went, hmm. Hmm. Well. No, you didn't. You did like the best howler monkey impersonation. You were like, woo, 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 and you were, you were flipping out and you were you know, throwing the popcorn. Because when you see something awesome and great and when it strikes your heart, when you see something majestic or amazing or glorious or good, we react with actions of worship that look very much like what's going on here in this psalm. So it's the same thing as like watching the Pats, except instead of reacting to a play, we're reacting to our Creator, who is you know, enough to fuel an eternity of worship. You know, think of that moment. You know, it was a brief moment, and maybe you've watched it like eight times on YouTube when Butler intercepted that. But, but, you know, every time you watch it, it's like, oh, that was great. But, you know, your reaction gets less. God is the one who, when we finally see him for all eternity, will never reach a kind of saturation point where we'll stop wanting to worship him like that. Because his goodness and his glory, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. It's never going to be, stop being surprising and wonderful to us. And we're, we're going to worship him. John Piper has used an analogy. I think I've shared it before. I'll share it again. It really bears repeating. But, but he said, you know, worship is like a wood-burning stove. You guys, some of you have wood-burning stoves. You were happy you had one this last winter. And uh, you know how a wood-burning stove works. It's a, a big iron, cast-iron stove, and then you stick wood in it, and it burns, and then it lets off heat, and, you know, you, you know how it works. Well, the analogy is that the wood-burning stove is like your heart and my heart. And, and the heat that is emitted is, is like worship. It's like the feelings we feel and maybe the things we do and the songs we sing and, and worship comes out. But, but to fuel that fire, you've got to put logs in to the, the wood-burning stove. And in Piper's analogy, the logs are truth about who God is and what he's like. The thing that causes that fire and the heat to radiate out from our hearts and even our hands and our lives and our bodies is as we come in awe of who God is. It's truth about God that fuels that. You know, that's what separates true worship from just hyped-up emotionalism. You know, you can get people together and hype up emotions that looks like worship, but it's just emotion. You can go to a great concert and feel lots of feelings because of the music and the atmosphere and the lights and and the expectation. But true worship isn't just emotionalism. It is a response to God and His glory and His truth and the gospel. 
That's what causes true worship. And so here's Psalm 95, gives us a big boost. Psalm 95 gives us two big logs to put into our hearts. Two big Duraflame logs that'll burn bright in your soul. If you are feeling lethargic and kind of pooped out in worship, and you're like, you know, I come here every Sunday, it's good, but you're distracted. Or if, if you ever found those where you go like months go by and you haven't really worshiped, and you find yourself in church more critiquing everything than actually worshiping anything, and what do you need? How do you fix that in your soul? And the answer is, you need truth about God. You need to stand in awe of God again. God has to become large and awesome in your heart again. And so here are two big logs. Log number one, verses three and four. God, the great king over creation. Look at verse three. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. God is the king as, as the Jewish, our Jewish friends often pray at the beginning of their prayers, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, blessed are you, Lord or God, Melech HaOlam, king of the universe. He's the king of the universe. He's the king above all the other so-called gods. Not that there are gods, but he's the king. In his hand are the depths of the earth. And the mountain peaks belong to him. I love that. His hand has the depths. Have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? I grew up about five hours from there, so we, I've gone several times. And when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, I'm telling you, it looks fake. It's so big, it's so ridiculously huge that your mind can't like, put the scale into reality. And you just stand there and you're like, I'm looking at the biggest mural ever. Like this is a, this, you know, I expect it just to roll up and there to be like some scenery behind it. it. It can't be real. It's too big to be real. And then to think that our God just, it's in his hand the Grand Canyon and all the galaxies and all the stars. He, he holds it all together. The reason that reality is working fine this morning is God's God is upholding the fabric of reality and all the laws of physics and everything are held together by his power. He holds the depths in his hand. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. God owns it. You know, go for your walk up on Mount Washington. Look around. God owns everything you see. Why? Because he made it. God has the claim upon everything. Everything in this universe belongs to God, including you and me, because he made it. And if you made it, it's yours, and you can do with it what you want. And he's the maker of all things. Why, what an awesome God. You know, if you're struggling to worship, maybe you do need to go up to New Hampshire, go walk on the beach and just look around at the world and then come back here and be like, whoa, I, I realize God made all that. But he's not only the great God way up there. Here's another log. Here's the second Duraflame log to stick into our, the wood-burning stove of our hearts to generate true worship. It's in verse 7. He, he's not only the, the high, awesome God, but he's also the tender shepherd who's close to us. Look at verse, actually verse six. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Look at the personal pronouns. He's our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. God cares so tenderly for us. He loves us, and we're his. 
Some of you heard Godwin preach on, Pastor Godwin preached on Psalm 23 two weeks ago. Man, if you want to hear a great sermon about God's loving shepherding care of us, go back and listen to that sermon again. God is, he's not only way up there, but he's really close right here. To put it in theological terms, God is both profoundly transcendent, but he's also tenderly imminent. God is the the holy God who is above and beyond us that no eye can see, but he's also the God who comes close and tenderly to us and reveals himself to us. We're his people. Do you know, if you want to experience the glory of God, you can go up to the mountains in New Hampshire, or I keep saying that, anywhere in creation. You can go and see the beauty of God in creation. You know the other great place, if you really want to encounter God's presence? Go to a gathering of Christians who are worshiping him. Go find a flock, and the shepherd will be right there in the midst of it. You know, go to a church. I don't care if it's 1,000 people in the church. I don't care if it's 500 people in the church. I don't care if it's 15 people. Find a church where they're listening to God's word and they're worshiping Jesus and you will experience the unique presence of God because the shepherd is among his people. And so right now, God is with us, even in this space. He knows us. You know, he's not just way up there, like, I'm running the universe, it's a big job, I can't really take your call. He's Like, whatever you're going through, whatever you're in, he knows it intimately. He knows all the details of of every fear and anxiety and issue and struggle you're facing. He's here with his sheep. And then, if that's not enough to stoke your worship, put those two truths together. Put them together. Think that the transcendent, awesome God who created all things has come so near to shepherd us that he even took on flesh in a person named Jesus. And that he, his care for us was so deep that he went to the cross. You know, take those two logs and see the cross. See Christ who, who died for us. The, he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And so even though we are sinful people who get confused and distracted, God came close to us in Jesus and he died for us and he rose again so that we could know his love and his care. It's it's just amazing how much God loves us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's the incredible story of the gospel. If that doesn't fuel worship, I, I, I don't know what does to think those things. So what a great, what a great call to worship. We have the summons to worship. We have the, the way to worship. We have action. And then number three, we have why we worship, which is because God is our great God and he's our tender shepherd and Jesus has laid down his life for us. And you think, boy, that, what a great psalm. Well, then verse eight happens. And then there's a sudden shift in the psalm. The tone changes It goes from celebration to caution. It goes from joyous worship to stern warning. The atmospheric pressure bottoms out. It's like you get to verse 8 and it just goes, right? We we go from raised hands in worship to pointed fingers in warning and threats. It gets really heavy. It's like one of those weird New England days where, you guys know these days where it's like 80 degrees out at 3 p.m. and then some weird weather thing happens and by 4 p.m. it's 50 degrees. 
and the, the temperature just goes, and, and, you know, it gets dark and overcast, and everyone's like, whoa, what happened? It's like that. Verse 8, and there's a stern warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and as you did that day at Massa in the desert. And so there's the warning of the second half. Don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice. So the first half, the message is, come, let us worship. The second half is, don't harden your hearts. What's, what, by the way, in verse 8, what's Meribah and Massa? Well, it's a time uh, when Israel was first coming out of Egypt, when they were first leaving Egypt, and they were going to the promised land through the wilderness, and then they started griping. Oh, God, you know, why did you bring us here? We don't have any water. And they wanted to kill Moses. And they're like, is God with us? Why would God do this? This is not comfortable. We didn't sign up for this. And it's just like huge whining and griping fest and really not trusting the Lord. And so Moses is like, what am I supposed to do? And and God provides water for them. And so they called that place Masa and Meribah. Those are the waters. But then here's, this is the problem. Is that little incident in Masa and Meribah becomes the paradigm for their whole journey through the wilderness. And it reaches a climax when they finally get to the promised land. And then God's like, all right, time to go into the promised land. And they're like, we can't. There's big giants in there. We're scared. Why did you bring us here? Let's kill Joshua and Moses and elect someone new. And let's go back to Egypt. And, and finally, you know, after all that time, God is like, that's it. Done. Verse 11. They shall never enter my rest. And that generation was, died in the desert. It was the next generation they got to go into the promised land. And so there's this warning here not to harden our hearts against the Lord, not, not to, to shut our hearts down. So, so now let's put it together. What does that warning in verses 8 to 11 have to do with the wonderful call to worship in verses 1 to 7? And I think the answer is that the most important thing we bring to worship is our heart. You know, we can come to worship, we can sing and do all the things. We, you, you, can, you can go through the motions of everything in verses 1 to 7, but have a heart that is hard and disobedient and far from God. The most important thing we bring to worship is our heart. That's, that's the whole thing. Is our heart open to the Lord? And is it, is it tender and soft? Are we listening? Are we obedient? Maybe God has is, is called you here today, and here you are. You didn't want to come, but you're here. And um, you're hearing about Jesus. You're hearing about God. But, you know, your heart is just, like, closed. You know, your parents have been hammering on you about God for years. Your spouse has been telling you and pleading with you, and sometimes they're, you know, trying to get you to just open your mind to the Lord for years, but you just got that closed-off heart. You got a padlock on it, and you welded it. No wood going into that wood-burning stove. I just would plead with you to, to hear this warning. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Maybe people have been telling you for years about the Lord, and you've just said no, and, and not, now it's just like pride. Like, well, I can't say yes now. I've said no all these years. That's, that's wicked stupid. Man, this is your eternal life we're talking about. The Lord is calling us to worship him. And Jesus died to save sinners. 
Don't harden your heart to the Lord. That's the, the, the epitome and the height of folly. Because there comes a day when God says, you shall never enter my rest. You don't want to spend eternity restless and tormented. But there's also a warning here to us as Christians not to harden our hearts. Again, we need to bring obedient, soft hearts to the Lord. We need to be looking to Him. Um, Again, maybe your heart this morning is kind of lethargic toward worship. It's sort of old hat. You don't really feel it. And, and I just say, man, go stoke up your heart with the glory of God. Maybe go for that walk on the beach and think about the Lord. D- do you read the Bible regularly? You know, if, if you don't read the Bible regularly and you don't cultivate your own personal worship, don't be surprised if corporate worship seems a little dull to you, whatever it is. You've got to stoke up your own worship of God. Worship is individual, but it's also corporate. And so they, they feed on each other, right, back and forth as we, we cultivate that. that. That's why it's good to be in a growth group, to meet with other Christians during the week in someone's home and just keep stoking the flames and encouraging each other with God's Word so that as we get together, our hearts are, are filled up and soft and ready to hear what God has to say to us. And there is that always that danger of hypocrisy. You know, I think, it, you know, why are these, these two sections together in the same psalm about worship? I think it's because it's so easy to be a hypocrite. It's so easy to go through the motions of worship, but to have sin and disobedience hidden in our lives. I mean, how many stories have we heard about, about pastors who have really successful ministries, and then it all comes out that there was some double life or some secret life or, or you hear about you know the worship leader in the church and 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 they're you know everyone really appreciates them and they seem to be like so into the worship of god and then this other dark side comes out and you realize man there's this all this this junk and darkness in that person's heart like how, how did that happen how can that be how do people live double lives and i guess my answer is because we can do that. We're good at that as sinful people. We know how to put on facades. And we know how to go through the motions of worship and to look like a, a Christian or a leader, but to let sin fester in our lives. So the most important thing you can do for worship is, is to bring your heart before the Lord. That's what God is looking to the most. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. That's what the Lord tells us in 1 Samuel. People do what's right in their eyes, but God weighs the motives of the heart. So we need to bring our hearts before God. Because you see, the greatest act of worship that you can perform is not singing. The greatest act of worship you can perform is not raising your hands The greatest act of worship you can perform is not kneeling in church. It's not weeping. The greatest act of worship you can perform is not uh, clapping or, or shouting out loud, even though those can be acts of worship. The greatest act of worship that any of us can perform is to hear the Word of God and obey it. To obey is better and sacrifice. Those are the worshipers the Lord seeks. And so may we make our prayer, search me, O God, know my heart, 
test me, test my anxious thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh God, I just pray that you would search our hearts this morning, that we would hear the the joyous call to worship you, Lord, but also the stern warning. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a people who hear your word and obey and we don't harden our hearts. Oh God, save us from hypocrisy, save us from closed-mindedness and hard-heartedness. Oh Lord Jesus, I thank you that you can change hearts and I pray that you change our hearts. Give us hearts that worship you above all else. And Lord, may we be a church where the worship is vibrant and powerful and rich, but God, may it come from truth and from truly devoted hearts to you. Oh Lord, this is the kind of worship you desire. May it be so here. Teach us to worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.